Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I am Jason, a guy who's not telling his story today. <laughs> and I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And you've probably guessed, uh, you know, we came up with the idea. Billy did. I'll give him all the credit. He wanted for us to take turns telling our stories. Uh, not necessarily so much in the way we'd share it in a meeting, although I feel like mine's going to be exactly <laughs> the way we share it in a meeting when it comes time, but just more of a exploration of our stories. And so... That's what we're going to do. And of course, I, you know, I'm making Billy go first because that sounds way better for me. <laughs> yeah. So take it away, Billy. Yeah. So one of my motivations for doing this is I, like I've come to understand in my life at this point that everyone comes from different places and we all grew up in different environments. We come into this thing of life with different tools and skills and abilities. And, uh, that's what makes each of us unique and special and wonderful. And like everybody has a story to tell, you know, mm. everybody has a fascinating things about them. And a lot of people never fucking get asked like about themselves or get a chance to talk about themselves or their experience in their life. Um, and so I wanted to share with our listeners, you know, something about us, like more right. than just what we share on here and where we come up with our fucking dime store psychology ideas and <laughs> what are you going to do when upbringing. everybody reaches out for sponsorship from you <laughs> <laughs> they probably won't um so anyway so and i just wanted it really to get a chance for our listeners to get to know us you huh. know who we are and where we come from so um i'll start with myself um i'm 47 now i uh was, yeah getting old uh i was born and raised in baltimore city um uh, my parents were Healthy, normal people, young 20s. Debatable. Uh, yeah, they might have been unhealthy. They were as healthy as I recognize healthy people to be. Um, and so I was born and raised in Baltimore City. Um, my parents were like, a, I'm going to say, working middle class family. We grew up in a row house in Hamden. Um, Didn't they own a business? Well, at that time, my dad just worked for his family's business. He didn't own it at that time. So, okay. the, and get a little bit into that. But so my family, I came from a retail background. Uh, my family owned a luggage and leather good business called Turks Beckers. It started in 1899, actually in wow. downtown Baltimore. And then it spread throughout the years. It got as big as like 40 something retail stores across, you know, Virginia all the way up to like, I think as far north, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, they had stores in Detroit, but they were all in shopping malls mm -hmm. in a lot of malls all around the country. And at that time, my dad was just employed by the business. Uh, his father was running it, which would have been the third generation. Um, wow. So when I was a young kid, my dad just worked there. I couldn't even tell you exactly what he did. I don't <laughs> know what his job was. He just worked there in some capacity. Um, and so we had, you know, a, a working 
middle class upbringing. We certainly weren't poor by any stretch. We had things that we wanted. Um, my parents put us all into private Catholic school. Uh, we were Catholic, although in our household we weren't overly Catholic. Like there wasn't prayer or any of that going on on a regular basis. Like we were just. I think my dad put us in Catholic school and we went to church on Sundays because of my grandmother, his mother, mm. more than anything, because that was his upbringing. It's always fascinating to me because uh, a buddy of mine from Baltimore uh, also went to Catholic school and yet there was like very little religion in his house. And I was like, huh, it's mm. always weird to me. Well, the other down or upside, I should say, to Catholic school for my parents anyway was that at the time the school we would have went to would have been 55 which in baltimore if you ever heard of that came notoriously a bad school i can't say that it still is but back then 56? in the 80s it was it might have been 56 well 55 was elementary school that's where i went i was yeah so just, that would have been where i went to elementary school but 56 then, was the middle school which was yeah. pretty rough yeah so <laughs> anyway it was an inner city school that didn't have great you know reputations mm -hmm. and um so they didn't want us to go to city public school system and so they got us out of public school system and put us in and i had an older sister um week because i do remember vaguely going to public school in like kindergarten in first grade so i don't know if something happened or somewhere along the line my sister would have been in probably third grade at that time so whatever reason they pulled us out put us in catholic school and we started taking the public bus so we would take the bus from hamden all the way across to mount washington and we would go through we took the public bus with a lot of kids that went to polytech um, which at the time was fascinating because we had our little school, you know, uniforms on. And this were kids that were, um, it's poly is a predominantly black school and a lot of kids that were high into fashion. So they like had like the cool sneakers and the cool outfits and stuff. And we like had to wear these nerdy, you know, Catholic school outfits to school. Was that LA gears back then? <laughs> I don't know. Well, know I do remember and being on the, the bus and like say we took the public bus and they would have those big ginormous fucking boom boxes i mm. mean like you know big as a piece of luggage you know kids would carry those things i think you bring up two two relevant points with this story uh one why is the only alternative to public school religious school right michael why don't we have if you okay you don't want to send your kid to public school why not have a private school that's not religious why do we have to choose religion when you don't want yeah. and the other point of like you said you don't know if something happened because you were in public school and then you weren't and you had an older sister and like the secrecy of families and not that kids necessarily need to know everything but yeah, like we we do as families in America tend to really keep secrets, not only from outside the family, right? But even inside the family, there's a ton of fucking secrets, which I think is not healthy. For yeah, us. that's a big part of my story growing up is those having issues of like sort of, you know, the elephant in the room issues and no one talking about it. You know, my wife has pointed that out as I got older, like growing up in an environment where that was completely normal not to talk about the most obvious ginormous problems and mm. for my wife you know when i met her she had 12 years clean you know and her coming in and seeing the dynamic in my family and being like why is nobody talking about this like <laughs> we don't talk about that shit like what are you talking you know and to her, right. her pointing out how uncomfortable and unhealthy that stuff yeah was 
Like to me, that was I. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, you don't talk about things like this. <laughs> well, and I think as kids, you know, we tend to think, oh, kids don't pick up on anything. They don't know as long as we don't bring it out in the open, you know. But kids are are way better, I think, than most adults at tuning in to the vibe, the tension, the the mood, the atmosphere. And so, like, that's a very early point of like things not lining up. You know, I got these parents that say everything is fine and everything on the surface looks fine. And yet I have this feeling inside that says something's off. And that's like incongruity, which doesn't lead to you feeling like you have a good concept of of understanding the world. Like you can't trust yourself now because you're like, oh, well, I don't feel right. But everything says it is. So something's obviously wrong with just, you know, the way I pick up on things. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, so. As a kid going to pop, I mean, going to private school, we, it was a small school. Um, I played sports. I got good grades, you know, was very involved, very active in school. I always learned and picked up things really well. They didn't really have gifted and talented. It wasn't like a Catholic school that took trouble kids. Like if you were trouble in that school, you got thrown out. They only kept kids that were good academically and good students and that, you know, showed up regularly and I'm sure could afford to pay. (laughs) Why didn't you go to St. Thomas right in the neighborhood? It was a Catholic school. So that's where we actually went to church. We didn't go to school there. I don't. (laughs) <laughs> Couldn't tell you. You'd have to ask my parents. I Take didn't know I wasn't involved in the decision making, right. you know, process of that. But that's actually where we went to church was St. Huh. Thomas, where my grandmother went. Um, so, yeah. And the two, I would say, relevant things happened as I was a young kid, probably before the age of 10. Or I say relevant. I'm sure there's lots of other relevant things. But two major life changing things that happened. One, I was sexually abused at that age from the age of uh, and it's hard to remember exactly because it's such vague memories that I spent, you know, 30 years of my life stuffing down and ignoring with drugs and that sort of thing. But probably from the age of like seven to nine, somewhere in that range, uh, several times being sexually abused by an older family member who was a older cousin. He was an older teenager at the time. And, uh, you know, we would go over their house to hang out like you would. My mom's family was close. They all lived, uh, they lived over in Medfield, if you know, mm-hmm. right next to Hamden, a couple blocks away. And my mom had another sister that lived in Hamden, a couple blocks from us. So her sisters all lived around. The family was kind of close and they hung out with each other. So we'd go over there and hang out. Oh, and they had a swimming pool at their house, which was the reason we went over to their house a lot. And, you know, so. There was opportunities there. He took advantage of sexually abused me. My brother, I've come to learn some other family members besides us come to find out later. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, at the time, I don't know how that affected me. I mean, as a kid, that shit's, you don't process it like you do when you're older, right. when you're going through it. And, you know, but some weird things about that, not to make this too creepy, but like, so this guy had a lot of like uh matchbox cars and like these cool matchbox things and all this fun stuff and he would, you know, sort of lure you know, up to his room with these mm. cool things and I like to play with those things. But then being in that situation was really uncomfortable and weird. But then when we went there I would put myself back in that situation, being lured with those things. So there would be a sense of like 
as I got older trying to figure out how this happened, like, well, I must have liked it or I must have I put myself, you know, that that victim stuff that we tell mm-hmm. ourselves that have come to find out isn't true. That is very unhealthy. Well, and, and the part of it I think that's damaging is we take on this blame of I chose it in the sense of I chose it all. And, and it's like it's like if we had an older, you know, cousin that was charged with taking care of us for times when our parents had to have emergencies or went on vacation together or something and they fed us ice cream all day long and then we take responsibility for how that affected our health later right like well of course we fucking chose ice cream like it felt good right (laughs) right and and i think we missed that just because you're a child does not mean your sexual organs they might not work like an adult shit still feels good yeah and that's nothing wrong with you because of that that's how they're programmed to work right and not only at that at that age no one's talking about sex or any of that stuff at all so you have no point of reference and definitely back in the 80s there Mm -hmm. is a little more talked about now probably not near as much as it even should be but there was no conversations and definitely none around Catholic school around sex or you know what was healthy and what wasn't healthy or any you know Mm-hmm. parents weren't talking about it none of that at, at that age and they probably shouldn't have been i mean i wouldn't talk to my five-year-old about sex you know other than touching now there's touching right. conversations but in any case so that was a you know major event that happened um and then also i had an eye accident i was mm-hmm. uh, about between t- i should know this but i was between 10 and 12 years old um i was in a farm store and carrying some soda bottles and i dropped a soda bottle and somehow glass shot up and cut into my eyeball just and to it- clarify for everyone because i call them the farm store as well but <laughs> i found out from my wife that everybody in other areas thinks of a farm store as places that sell tractors and shit oh. <laughs> this is a Royal Farms, which is like a Seven Eleven or a gas station, a Wawa. It's a little convenience yeah. store. When you grow up station. in the 80s in the city, it was called the Farm Store. That's, yes. that's what it, but it was Rofo. Now it's Rofo. Right, right. <laughs> Rebranding. <laughs> um, so anyway, that uh, caused me to have an eye injury. Um, through that, I went through a couple of surgeries, ended up having to wear glasses. I hated that. I felt, you know, as a kid for... Uh, a number of reasons, whether that's a contributing one or whether I already felt that way. But I, you know, as I got into early teens, I felt different. I felt, you know, unique. I felt like people weren't going to like me, that nobody understood me. There was things about being sexually abused. I thought, does this make me gay? Am I gay in some way? Not um, because you're I. Yeah, not because my okay. <laughs> um, and then of course wearing glasses, you know, was I, and that was another thing. I was good at school and I got really good grades, and I also played sports, uh, which seemed to be a little bit of a contradiction. Mm-hmm. There, that didn't seem to be a thing that most people did, uh, or that I saw anyway. Right. I can't say it's not a thing that most people did. Um, and so as I started getting into being a early teen it was like well do i want to be cool and hang out with the cool kids or do i want to hang out with like the nerd kids that are getting good grades in school and you know to me that's where that appeal to sort of the bad crowd came in is like i almost wanted to be a bad kid to fit in with that crowd more Mm. because my gut Mm -hmm. was to like do good in school and follow the rules and get approval like that felt like the right thing to do but I was so worried I would be rejected and my peers wouldn't like me or the people that I chose to be peers with. I mean, there were both 
peer groups. Mm-hmm. I just chose to be with the kids that were getting in trouble and, and doing things. And even at the city, in the city before we moved, uh, I started delving into some sexual stuff at a really young age at 10, 11, 12. I was like, you know, looking at dirty magazines and stuff with kids in the neighborhood, that stuff would come up. Um, and that's probably too young to be exposed to most of that without any sort of anyone talking to you from an adult or healthy perspective. Mm -hmm. It was like just being sexually abused and misinformation from kids in the neighborhood. Hmm. (laughs) So, so there was a lot of, uh, and then Catholic school where they don't talk about any of that stuff at all, other than you're not supposed to do it or you're going to hell. Right. Do Um, it when you want kids. Yeah. So growing up that way, like I started to feel like I was destined for hell that, Something was definitely internally wrong with me. And uh, then we moved from the city to Cecil County out to Rising Sun, which was like the fucking complete and utter opposite of anything that we had experienced. Um, We moved into a giant farmhouse. It was like a seven bedroom house built in the uh, 1890s, you know, had a bunch of rooms, big, tall ceilings. Why did you move? So at that point, my grandfather had retired. My dad took over the business. So he was probably, I'm guessing, again, I don't know for sure, but I guess he was making a lot more money. My mom wanted to get out of the city. She didn't want to live in the city anymore and wanted to move to the county. So we moved to, I don't know how they found the house in Cecil County. Again, I wasn't yeah. involved in any of that decision making. Nobody has no my opinion then. as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> how do you find a house yeah. in Cecil County? So they ended up finding this house out in Rising Sun. And I'm, I mean, from the outside, it probably looked great. Like we're moving to this little small town. I mean, at the time, Rising Sun was just several hundred people. There was mm-hmm. very small, you know, our elementary school was really small and, uh, so I moved out there to Rising Sun, and it was definitely a different, like a culture shock, a culture thing. Um, kids were doing different stuff, you know. Kids around me had dirt bikes and were riding motorcycles and four-wheelers and hunting and shooting guns. And, you know, like I wasn't around any of that kind of stuff growing up, like just none of it. So uh, that contributed to the uncomfortableness the not feeling like i fit in and then just doing whatever i could to to fit in and be a part of um so early on in my say that i was 12 when we moved from 13 to probably 16 17 i basically would say i was a a redneck you know (laughs) like you know like i immediately jumped in with both feet and like Mm. yeah i'm gonna you know have a mullet and you know (laughs) get into that kind of stuff and people had mullets get, back then yeah it's the 80s man <laughs> like, i didn't think it was real <laughs> yeah oh see my high school graduation picture huh. i have a mullet <laughs> put that in this video somewhere <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so then we moved to rising sun and and just things were different you know it was a different way of life it was a lot of things to me was very appealing. I liked it. I liked being out around nature, around the country, getting into that kind of stuff. Um, I, our neighbor, you know, his family was from West Virginia. They were total hillbillies and I was all in with that. I went to West Virginia with his relatives, you know, for family trip a couple times because we were good friends. Um, but that was around the age of 13 or so. 
I was entered to smoke pot for the first time. And immediately when I smoked pot for that first time, I loved it. I thought right away, like, this is this is the thing that I've been looking for my whole life. All of a sudden, all that uncomfortableness and the way I felt about myself, like I didn't care. I was relaxed. I was calm. I actually smoked some weed. I went to a party um, with some other kids and just I felt so different. And just knew that that's what I just wanted to do all the time. And that kind of started, you know, my endeavor into drugs. I wonder um, if that's like that discussion in the, the Courage episode we had. Just that, you know, feeling that 25 level and, and you know, smoking the weed. And now I feel that normal 75 right. that everybody else seems to have all the time or other times. Yeah, well, it was a definitely, I'll make you. Oh, I guess in this term, maybe it's okay, but it was definitely a crutch to like get over any sort of social anxiety or any anxiety that I felt, you know, I could get high and that went away. You know, It's funny so, that we look at the term crutch as a negative, right? You wouldn't yeah. ever think somebody who had just broken their foot, you wouldn't be like, oh, disgusting, right. you need a crutch. <laughs> right. Like, But if somebody is broken internally, why wouldn't they need something to assist them to feel? you know, be able to function as someone who's not broken. Like, right. That just seems like, yeah, duh. <laughs> uh, and there were some other things too about, so as a young kid, like I was really late to hit puberty. Mm. So I was early exposed into sexual stuff, but I didn't hit puberty till I was like 17. I mean, it's I was weed. probably, yeah, it's probably <laughs> the weed that fucked me all up. But like at 13 years old, I was one of like the shortest, smallest kids in elementary school, um, even into early high school i mean i don't think i got really got much taller until i hit like 16 17 your mom was a smoker did she smoke during pregnancy uh probably Ooh. i mean i would guess that's kind of before we even knew much about that uh, but yeah, yeah i would we, guess so. it wasn't as widely like that's not good yeah <laughs> Um, what if that had anything to do with it? And again, all these are little things. Like, I don't know what one thing made me feel so inadequate as I got older, but it's all these little things that just lead up mm -hmm. to a bigger problem. But there was always a feeling of like not measuring up, not having to be somebody different than who I was. And then about, you know, and, and through that, you know, smoking weed, that starts to introduce you to different, different crowds of people. Yeah. Uh, this mostly started with my sister had, uh, an older boyfriend. She was a little older than me. She's two years older than me. So he would have been, she was 15 and her boyfriend was like two years older than her. So he was like 17. Mm. And then one of his good friends, who's a guy I'm still friends with today, actually, you know, thought it was fun to get all the kids to smoke weed. Like he thought that shit was fun. <laughs> and, uh, they were into like sort of the heavy red metal rock music and had like the long hair and, uh, this was like the, the Rambo slash Red Dawn time in the late 80s where it was like, yeah, if the commies come, we're going to run out to the woods and build a fort and like hold them all off with, wow. <laughs> with guns. And yeah, so we would go out into the woods and build forts and, you know, do all kinds of dumb shit while we were smoking weed and drinking and carrying on as kids. Um, I mean, looking at the situation today, y'all might have been able to hold off the Red Army. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but, uh. You know, that was where my using started. And in the beginning, it didn't have a ton of negative consequences. I mean, I kept up with my grades. I still played sports. You know, I started smoking cigarettes real young. I'm sure that didn't help with the growth stuff either, you know. And uh, 
but that crowd of people that the the bad kids that were into you know yeah. the bad stuff yeah that was what appealed to me that's what i thought was cool and that's what i wanted to be but it was hard to let go of like getting good grades and playing sports but slowly but surely that stuff started to go away and you know i did graduate with honors from high school i was plans to go to college and do all this kind of stuff and you know, I could see at that point in my life, my addiction had really taken off. I graduated when I was 17, um, and I was, I would say, probably full-blown addiction at that point. I hadn't gotten into the, most of the heavy drugs, but I was drinking alcohol every day, smoking mm -hmm. pot every day, you know, would do like Coke or any other acid, any other kind of drugs that came along. The availability of those things at 16 and 17 wasn't the same as I got old. You know, as I got older, right. I got more access to resources, <laughs> you know. But young, it was like anytime anything came along, I was never afraid to do it or try it or, you know, whatever. And uh, along with that came other bad behaviors, sneaking out of the house, ditching school, you know. And the things that I thought were important weren't important. And what became important was just partying and having a good time. And so it, at 17... Um, I graduated high school and thought I'll go to college later. I'll do all this stuff later. There'll be time to like, and I always had minor jobs. Like I would go, I worked for my family's business at one point and I thought, well, that's a cop out. That's an easy job to have, you know, plus I was using all the time and I was worried like if I worked actually with my parents, people would know what I was doing. So I got other jobs at other places and I always maintained like held a part-time job so that I could have access to money. You know, because I liked having all my own money. I didn't like having to lie, cheat, or steal for drugs. So I had access to money. I had access to drugs, and I could. That's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but that's a good story. <laughs> so, like, a lot of my early use, like, I've never had to resort to actually, like, sticking up people on the street or doing any of that stuff. As I got into harder drugs later, there was definitely manipulation and that kind of thing. But I was never like, oh, my God, I got to go out and steal shit to support my habit, mm -hmm. um, which I think is what contributed to me thinking, I don't really have a problem. These fucking guys have a problem. I'm doing fine. I got a job. I support <laughs> myself. You know what I mean? I'm doing good. Right. Um, But I got in some pretty serious trouble at 17. I actually was out was the summer after I graduated. I was out partying with some friend, a, a friend of mine. And got pulled over. We were drinking and driving and we had like a quarter pound of pot in the car that was all divided up into separate baggies. And that sounds a lot bigger than what it was actually. You know, the story sounds like we were dealing drugs and we sort of kind of were, but it was like homegrown backwoods, you know, rising sun, <laughs> crappy pot that his uncle grew. Right. Know, like, it's one of those kind of deals. It wasn't like some great weed that we were doing. Anyway, long story short, the cops don't care if it's backwoods rising sun weed or not. To them, it's a whole bunch of weed, and it's all divided into baggies. And so I ended up with some pretty serious criminal charges out of that. Caught and, a big-time uh, dealer out here Yeah, <laughs> on my resume. And uh, that started me into the legal system of like, oh, great. Now I'm into court and probation and judges. And, you know, at that time, my parents got us. Uh, got me a lawyer and I went to treatment. Uh, my first time in a treatment, I was 17. It was a private adolescent rehab. Um, and it was fun. It was like a summer camp, you know, it was great. It was out in the woods, out down in, uh, 
lower Delaware. Hmm. And the program at the time was called New Beginnings at White Oak, which they're not around anymore. I don't know whatever happened to them. That didn't work. If that place is, <laughs> yeah, right. But they had like a ropes course and you would go and they did all these like trust exercises with, you know, and it was my first introduction to like recovery and addiction and that there was a problem, you know, with my using. And I definitely wasn't ready to stop. I only went there for court stuff. But, you know, what I remember was that's the first time that I had actually talked to another human being about being sexually molested. Hmm. I actually talked to a counselor there when I had gotten clean for the 30 days or whatever that you were in there. I told him what happened. He asked if I wanted to talk to my parents about it. I said, I don't want to talk to them about it. You can talk to them about it if you want to. But I'm good. You know, that was the extent of of that. You got 30 days off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> That's a so, lot. So uh, I got out of that place and immediately went right back to doing what I did and getting high because I didn't want to stop using. Right. Was um, there a period where it like seemed alleviated then, though? Like, was it like, oh, I don't have to use as much and I don't have to be as bad, so to speak? I don't, I don't know. I feel like you held a job the whole time, so that really didn't. Yeah. Uh, and that's, of course, part of all the contradictions of myself. It's like, I was always in some state of trying to manage my using. Like, mm -hmm. I, 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 and manage is such a loose term in that respect. Like, I never, I didn't frequently i should say used to the point where it's like oh my god i can't go to work the next day you know that happened occasionally but like that would happen i'd be like whoa fuck that's a problem like mm -hmm. i can't do that so as long as i can still like make it to work the next day and i would use these justifications you know to sort of manage my using and i started looking at like the wrong markers for things so like i would Look at things like, well, I made it to work as the goal, not I'm actually showing up with an ability to actually do the job in any functional manner. You know? I made it to work. I took a nap for four hours, but I made it. Yeah. And I just had jobs that either didn't matter that much or one of them was like a cleaning company where we went out and cleaned offices at night. And one of the guys that worked there, we got high when we went there. So, you know, whatever kind of shitty work we did <laughs> didn't really matter that much i mean it was empty in trash cans and sweeping floors you know it wasn't like overly difficult um so yeah then i started in there's just some joke in there about working for cleaning while you're living dirty or something but <laughs> i don't think that way anymore so yeah <laughs> this episode has been brought to you in part by voices of hope inc a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. In that rehab, though, I was first introduced to 12-step recovery, NA meetings, AA meetings, all that stuff. I did sort of immediately felt at home in NA meetings, mostly because, it, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, that was seemed like all old dudes in fucking AA, and it was all people that I could relate to in NA. It was Even though I was young, it was 
guys I was familiar with from around like their rising sun party scene. It was old mm. biker pagan guys. And you know what I mean? Like people that use drugs, <laughs> they have a kind of similar look to them. I don't know. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I felt, and there was younger people there too. And, you know, I just felt more at home in NA meetings, but of course I didn't stay and I didn't stay clean. And, uh, and this is where things get really hazy because then my using really progressed into like my early twenties. Um, I ended up in treatment again at some point in an adult treatment center. Um, my using definitely got to the point where it was a lot of harder drugs more often, you know, lots of acid trips and cocaine. Heroin wasn't a big thing around back then, so it wasn't as available, but, um, crank i think that's crystal meth i'm not sure <laughs> they used to call it crank that's what the old bikers <laughs> used to call it you know that's where you get the crank from the old biker dudes and uh you know just doing whatever was available whatever i could find to get high you know was right. really it but it predominantly drinking smoking weed every single day of my life and uh you know college and things were on the back burner now all this so through all that legal stuff i ended up with like a five-year probation sentence and, you know, had to report every month and drug tests and counseling and all that. And I never I, I did all the physical things I was supposed to do, but I never stopped using. I took I can't remember what they were called now, but all the how you get through drug test things, the <laughs> drinks and the pills, and like, whatever that all that shit. I did all of that shit all the time to go mm. past my drug tests. Wow. And, yeah. Sounds expensive. Uh, it probably was. Yeah. I can't. I don't remember. <laughs> Um, and then it just gets hazy as to arrests and things like that. But along the way, um, I ended up at, in, at 19, I ended up in NA, I don't think out of treatment, kind of on my own of like, yeah, I think this, like, I really think I have a problem now. I think I need to stop. Life mm. isn't going. Oh, and I had went to college and dropped out and then went to college again and dropped out. <laughs> no, at that point I'd only went once and dropped out. Because it interfered with my partying. Right. Um, and then I went to NA and went to meetings for, I went to meetings for a total of about nine months and celebrated nine months clean. But I didn't actually have nine months clean. Huh. I went for several months and actually got clean and got a sponsor and started doing some stuff. And then somewhere in the middle there, um, my cousin had said, hey, you know, a group of us, and this is a female cousin with a bunch of her girlfriends from high school said, hey, we're going down to senior week at Ocean City. Do you want to come stay with us? And I said, fuck yeah, <laughs> because who wouldn't want to go stay with right. a group of high school seniors graduating for senior week? So yeah. I said, fuck yeah. So I went down to senior week and drank and partied with them that whole week and then came back and was like, oh, shit. I can't tell any of these people in NA any of this. These are all my new friends and people. So I'll just act like I'm still clean. And mm. So I just acted like I was still clean and kept going to meetings. Did you like use after that here and there? No. Or you just. Yep. Just that huh. week up to nine months. And, and I didn't think that it was okay. I knew. I just. I don't know. My, but imagine the if there wasn't. <laughs> right. I'm just thinking imagine if there wasn't this uh, prioritization of clean time or, or the stigma around the idea of relapse. And if it was just like not a big deal. And if you'd have been able to talk about it and be honest, oh, yeah, man, I, I slipped up. I went down there and did that. You know, I'm back. I'm all in. Like, I wonder if that would have. 
you know what I mean? Like, who knows if you went back out because of the shame of feeling disauthentic or inauthentic with those people after a time? Or Yeah, I can't. I don't know. I mean, I, it's so hard to think back then now to what I mean. Sick I, as our secrets. I could tell you what put me in the place of wanting to use again was going back around my old friends, you know, after that time, because there was something to be said for like I did like partying you know what i mean there is some fun around that stuff going and people carrying on and drinking games and lots of sex and yeah. you know what i mean yeah, like there's there's excitement in all not of as that. much random sex happens clean and sober i gotta be <laughs> no. honest it just doesn't. no and when you're just showing up and like going to work and paying your bills and there's not as much excitement i mean maybe there can be I, i'm sure there can be and there i have different things that excite me now but right. at 19 20 years old like yeah, I'm going to eat lunch when we leave here. Yeah, that having long-term goals is was not on my – healthy people might have long-term goals. Right. I did not. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then I just went back around my old friends and old people that I liked. And, and in the beginning said, I'm not going to use, but I'm still going to hang out with these guys and it'll be fun. And I really probably thought that, but <laughs> whether I really thought it or just lied to myself is hard to say. Right. But then I ended up back around my old friends and started using again. And uh, I, I'm not one of those people that came in and out or says it ruined their high. Or none of that happened. I went right back to getting high. I was like, fuck yeah. Like, I'm good. <laughs> and I did that for eight years until I got clean this time. Mm -hmm. But um, then after that, I can't remember when heroin kind of came around to the area of Rising Sun. Um, it was like the early to mid nineties and then I did heroin for the first time and I fucking, I love that was the new thing of like, mm. oh, this is what I really been looking for my whole life. <laughs> like, mm. This is what I want. And, uh, that got fairly unmanageable, a little more unmanageable than some of the other drugs. Uh, unsurprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> and so in the time that I actually was clean, my brother was in a really horrific accident. Um he was coming home from high school, bringing his girlfriend home, driving down the road, and a guy crossed the center line and hit them two head on at like 80 mile an hour. He was passing another car or a truck and he couldn't see a car around there, so he just jetted out. And when he jetted out, they were there. He was going like 80 some mile an hour. My brother's probably gone 60-ish mile, and they hit head on with no brakes. So, of course, it tragic accident. My brother lived. He was severely messed up in the hospital yeah. for months and months of time with all kinds of reconstructive surgery uh it killed his girlfriend at mm -hmm. the time that was with him um and i mean i was very selfish back then it had some impact on me i'm not gonna lie because i was clean at that time and i tried to help him as much as i could and went and saw him in the hospital and did all that i mean i will say i'm grateful that i was clean in that time frame for my family and stuff probably for my mom be one less thing to worry about although i'm sure she's still probably worried about me right um but by the time this is a few years later and by the time heroin came around so he was sort of better he had gotten a huge settlement from this accident several hundred thousand dollars and was also and at that time we had gotten to hanging out a lot and you know, we had gotten pretty close after his accident and started partying a lot together. And then we all got into heroin and stuff together. And 
he had all this money, so he bought this house, and we all just lived there in a big giant party house, (laughs) you know. And I still had a job. I still had my own job, and I still contributed somewhat to the house and did that. It wasn't like I just mooched off my brother for years, although he um, took care of me plenty. I'm not trying to act like I didn't. But he had other friends that it kind of would piss me off that did nothing and just hung out there with him and did his drugs all day, you know. Wonder if that was girlfriends like and things like that. Dude. The mirror of yourself, though, like they pissed you off because there was some of that going on for you too. Oh, you I'm sure it's because it. I was doing that to some level. It's yeah. not like I wasn't like totally self sufficient. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was some level of like, hey, I'm going to buy a bunch of heroin, and here you can have some too. <laughs> right, right. And I wasn't like, no, no, that's <laughs> I, I'm above that. <laughs> right. My seventh, that was not happening. My son's tradition states that I'm just not going <laughs> to allow that, there, brother. Right. Um. But he had this house, and it was—I mean, we tried to maintain it to some level. We actually did pay bills. We had roommates. We all kind of paid rent, and people kind of had jobs in different facets. And then somebody's job along the way became just selling drugs out of the house. That became their job, and they were the ones going to Philly and getting the drugs. And so, like, my brother and I didn't have to be involved in that part of it for a long time. Um, There was somebody doing all that part. We just had someone at the house all the time who— paid in drugs <laughs> so so it was kind of convenient um and it kept me out of certain elements of using that i didn't have to be involved with you know right. i wasn't somebody who had to run back and forth to philly all the time or run back and forth to baltimore all the time i just never did that wasn't something that i did and so i at that time i worked for my family's business and i actually it's hard to say i I was a good employee. I mean, I could have been a much better employee, and I did embezzle money from their company. Um, I took some cash, but I was a good guy. Well, and what I'm the only thing I mean by that is I managed a retail store for them, and the store was successful. Like the mm-hmm. store made money, and we sold, and I was good at sales and good at certain aspects of Not my job. Not as much as it would have made if you wasn't stealing well, it, right? And that becomes the thing. Like, could it have been better? Could things have been different? Could I have taken on more responsibility or a different role in the company? I mean, all those things. And again, being high all the time, I don't know what world of delusion I could have been living in too. There should, there could have been some delusional things going on there. Like it was doing just fine, whether I was there or not, that right. could have been real too. <laughs> but I showed up for work and I did some semblance of a job at a store that was somewhat successful, <laughs> you know, in a company that had 30 some stores that they weren't all successful. You know, there were other stores that weren't successful. So anyway, but whether that could have been more luck I can't say for sure. I don't right. attribute that to anything great that I was doing while I was on heroin in the bathroom. But in any case, um, at that point in my life, you know, things did start to get pretty like that's a point in my life where I could really see like, oh, fuck, I am definitely addicted to drugs. Like I could not go without being high any amount of days. And then things started to really that house got pretty crazy. It was, you know. My brother played in a band with some other guys who played in a band, so we would have, like, a band there playing all the time and people just drinking and partying and car crashes and, I mean, just any kind of chaos you could think that would come with a situation like that was that house. The cops were there bunches of times. I got arrested there at least once. They charged me with serving minor to alcohols because I was one of the only people there that was 21 and owned the house. So, yeah, it was, like, weird shit like that would happen. Um, and the cops were there quite a bit for neighbor complaints and different things. Um, 
Yeah, and that's when things were pretty chaotic. And then there was an incident there where the cops did like the... And I wasn't there for this event, but it was pretty severe. They did the kick the front door in, drug raid on the house, like guys with guns and masks coming through the front and through the back and fucking breaking windows. And they were doing this like major drug raid on the house. And I happened not to be there. I happened to be with another guy out getting some other drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that situation could have been really a lot worse than it turned out to be. Had they been like an hour later, we would have got in a lot of trouble because it was like a Friday night and the group, the guys that go to Philly and get all the heroin. So we used to, I guess I'm not giving anybody any good information, but what we used to do is pool all our money. We'd say, all right, who's got what to throw in for the heroin? We'd pool all our money. The one guy would go up and get whatever, and then we'd figure out how much we had to sell to make all our money back and then divvy up the rest amongst each other so you would in essence get yours for free as long as he could sell whatever to everybody else you know so we had a system worked out something like that (laughs) didn't always work out that well but occasionally it did i'm just thinking about the incompetence of the police force that didn't know to wait another i know right so and he was on his way back from philly i was out with another guy and we went and got like an eight ball of coke and we're coming back because it was friday night it was going to be like a party night with the band and the keg and all that stuff i mean that was like a normal and we literally drove by the house with all the cop cars in the yard me and the guy with the coke and we just kept on driving you know yeah right on by and we're like holy fuck so it was kind of that close to being like a serious situation not that it wasn't serious they still charged us with all kinds of crazy stuff and it again it it sounded a lot worse than it was or maybe it was minimalist thinking at the time but i was charged with all kinds of heroin distribution because there was things like scales and baggies and empty baggies and all kinds of paraphernalia everywhere and we were trying to grow some pot plants that we weren't really growing you know we weren't good at cult it's not like we had a major weed but we're a bunch of drug addicts trying to grow pot plants so there was like six or seven pot plants that were you know three or four feet tall growing in the fucking room and just a lot of shit like that it was it was like a failed drug addicts <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but so they charged us with all of this stuff. I mean, all, there was five of us that lived there. All five of us got charged with, you know, distribution of heroin, distribution of marijuana, uh, possession of all those things, maintaining a public nuisance and then conspiracy charges on all that, which doubles everything that they put a conspiracy on. You know, it's just a bunch of crazy shit. Yeah, that was, like, ridiculous, and that's the way it felt. It's like, this is ridiculous. Like, we're not major drug dealers, you know, supplying to all of Cecil County. It's like, but it, it doesn't matter. Or maybe you were. Yeah. Um, And that was sort of a, a foray into me going to jail. That's how I ended up in jail. So I that was a violation of probation, obviously. through Up until that point, I'd been able to either finagle or talk my way out of violating probation. Mm-hmm. Like, I would fail a drug test and be like, oh, but I am going to these meetings and I'm doing better. I'll try. And because I was, like, clean cut and shaved and wore a suit and tie to work every day and looked and white. the right part and white. <laughs> it was with Cecil County, too. So, yeah, um, it, I was able to talk my way out of things a lot and get a lot of second chances and a lot of breaks mm-hmm. because I looked the... I was I looked the right part for someone trying to get their life together. Right. Um, but I really 
I mean, getting my life together, not the way they thought I should get it together. <laughs> uh, we got the heroin? Cool. I got the Coke. It's all coming together. <laughs> it's good. I just do the heroin all night. <laughs> and I do Coke to keep me up the next day. It works out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, things got pretty chaotic after that. And, and that started a series of events where it was like, well, there's no denying there's some real problems going on here. Um, why was it? So I ended up doing a year in the Cecil County Detention Center, uh, which is just the local. And for whatever reason, the judge saw that I was getting breaks and he didn't like that very much. So uh, he gave me all my time in lockup, like wouldn't even give me work release or anything. Wow. So it made me do. And at the time in Cecil County, you could only do a year was the maximum or then they would send you down to Department of Corrections. Well, everybody kept telling me, oh, dude, you'll be fine. If they send you down Department of Corrections, you'll get immediate release because they're overbooked and everything's crowded and you have no violent offenses. It's all just drug possession and petty shit. Like they're not right. going to care anything about you. They're going to send you in with an ankle monitor. So I was like, yeah, that'd be great. I can do that. Fine. <laughs> just send me home so I can get high. That's really all I want to do. <laughs> Um, but that's not what happened. He ended up giving me 364 days in Cecil County mm -hmm. Detention Center with no work release, which mm -hmm. meant I had to stay here in Cecil County in lockup. And I only did like eight months of that. But I spent my 21st birthday in jail, spent my 18th birthday in rehab. <laughs> so, and uh, that was my only real length of time spent in jail. You know, I was in the Cecil County Detention Center. So I'd never been to prison or anything. After that was a series of trying to use successfully without using hard drugs. So after I got out of jail, I said, well, I'll just drink and I'll just smoke weed and that'll be fine. And I still just did those things to complete excess of my life. I still drank every day to black out like and just thought that was normal. Like that was, you know, and you'd go to the alcohol classes and they'd be like, do you, you know, do you black out when you drink? I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, that was the goal. <laughs> like, absolutely. Do people drink for any other reason? <laughs> right. Um, And I just thought if I just drink and smoke weed, I'll be able to manage my life then. Then it'll be okay. And it it wasn't, you know. Um, I did that for four, yeah, about four years. And eventually ended up violating the probation on something or another. I can't remember. Oh, so from the whole thing with the drug raid on the house, I ended up with a four-year suspended sentence. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I violated probation, I had to go do that four years. And then, of course, I violated that probation. And through this, I had gotten other arrests, too. I don't – and they are all vague. And, like, I, I think I've had four, at least four, maybe five DUIs sprinkled in there in different places and a couple different possession arrests that would always be plea bar so i always had lawyers and i never quite i mean my experience with the legal process was i would go in the lawyer would be like all right here's what you're charged with this is what you're going to plead to this is what you're going to have to do and i would either go okay or no i don't want to do that like but i never quite paid much attention to like what it actually meant in the long scheme of things like huh. i don't know what that means <laughs> it was just go see the lawyer and then all right well what do you think i should do here how do i stay out of jail what probation sure or whatever so you were you were uh well versed in 
going to a power greater than yourself <laughs> yeah, when you right. didn't know what to do. Right. But I lost my license at times. So I had my license taken away. Um, I had to go through driving classes to get my license back and alcohol monitor programs. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff sprinkled in there somewhere along the way. Um, but then, yeah, that four years was like, and I never did heroin, cocaine, acid, nothing, no heavy drugs. I just was going to drink and smoke pot and have a manageable using life. And, uh, I mean, I managed, I ended up in a different room off a guy that also drank all the time. And I partied with him at his house and could never really maintain any sort of quality relationships. Um, could never maintain any sort of girlfriend type relationships. Like those relationships were all for me were always relationships of convenience. Like I hung out with a girl as long as it was convenient and fun and felt okay. But as soon as somebody else came along or she wasn't available or she wasn't doing what I wanted to do, I just, well, let's get a different girl. And I'm sure I'd, Sometimes they would stop calling me. It wasn't like I pulled all the strings. Sometimes they just stopped calling me. I'm like, hey, where did she go? Why did she stop calling me? Like, fuck, she's not calling me back anymore. Like, that happened, too. But that was like relationships were just kind of like that. They were just relationships of convenience, and there was no emotional or intimate connections. Um, And then at, at some point, that life just got pretty shitty. Like, I could see that didn't matter what drugs I was doing or, or, you know, what, what drug it was. Like I used to excess until it took precedent over everything else in my life. You know, using had to come first. And then as long as I could use, then everything else could fall in line behind that. Mm -hmm. And when you're just drinking and smoking weed, that's a lot easier to maintain. But there's still a lot of chaos that comes with like, hey, I blacked out last night and spent all my money. And uh, now I got to figure out what I'm going to do for rent. Like, hey, I blacked out last night and crashed my car into something, and I don't know what I hit or where I hit it, but it my was, car is fucked up. Like, that hopefully it wasn't stuff. a person. Yeah. Or and, living. You know, or asking people, hey, you know, I don't know what I did last night. Do you remember, you know, who I was with or where yeah. I was or what the fuck happened? You know, you know, there's just something about, I guess for me, I can't say for everybody, but something about what that just did to my soul. That I was like, I don't, I'm just existing at this point. I'm not living a life that I'm happy with. I'm not living a life that I'm proud of. I, you know, hurt and abused and took advantage of relationships with people that love me, like my family, my parents, you know, aunts, uncles, relatives, all that sort of stuff. I mean, just to go back, I remember like I had my graduation party when I graduated from high school and like two hours into my graduation party, my whole family had come, everybody had come to celebrate at my parents put on this big party and like two hours in i'm like all right i got all my money now can i leave like i want to go out with my friends i don't want to be here for this party anymore this shit's for you guys it ain't for me Mm. and uh getting into like an argument with my parents about that and totally not seeing their point of view you know what i mean totally not seeing like wait this is supposed to be my party for me i should be able to do what the fuck i want Mm. you know not appreciating that Hey, people came out of their way to give their time and attention to an accomplishment that you did. <laughs> right. And, uh, like, not not fully realizing at the time, like, what I look at now is, like, that's a conflict in my soul. Like, I know inherently somewhere in me I know that that shit's wrong, but I'm so caught up and self-consumed that I don't recognize it or own it. Right. Um. 
And so, yeah, I mean, it was, I violated that probation. I had this four-year prison sentence, and I just thought, fuck him. My roommate at the time had a gun, and I thought, nobody was there, and I was by myself. I said, I'm just going to blow my fucking head off because I can't keep living this way. This is going to be the rest of my life is going to be in and out of jail no matter what I try to do, no matter when I try to stop. Nothing has ever worked. You know, I've been to treatment. I've been to meetings. I've done all that stuff, and nothing works. Like, I'm inherently fucked. Mm -hmm. And, uh... It was, I hate to say like that light bulb moment or moment of clarity or whatever. It was, was like, could it be the drugs that are the problem? Could it be <laughs> if you just stopped using, like things might get better for you? And I was like, I don't fucking know, you know? And I was, the only thing that kept me from killing myself was my mom. I knew my mom loved me, was the only person that ever cared about me. Definitely more than I cared about myself at that point. I didn't give a fuck. I, I, you know, we go out and drink and drive. Like, I don't really care if I wreck and die. Like, who really cares? And some nights even thought, I'm just going to take this car off of this fucking road into this tree and just be done with this nightmare of a fucking mess I've created. You know? And thinking that was normal. Like, thinking that's just part of... Because like, they would ask you that stuff in counseling. Like, do you ever think of killing yourself? And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> not, not once. Yeah. But I always went through those programs thinking my job was to tell them what they wanted to hear, not to try to be any kind of honest or sincere. Because my goal wasn't to try to get better or healthy. My goal was to just get out of that. Right. Because my belief was that if I could just get high and use as much as I wanted, as often as I wanted, I would be fine. And that everyone else was the problem. Um. And when you're surrounded with people that are using, like, that seems to make sense. <laughs> you know? Um. And then I found my way to NA and I it was I had been to meetings throughout the years and I had been court ordered at different times. I had popped into meetings over that eight year period because I was court ordered to get my slip signed or whatever. And then I figured out I could just sign the slips however I wanted because they didn't fucking know anybody at meetings. Like I was smart enough to figure out those concepts. Like no one at the court is watching the people at NA. That's a completely different entity and they're not even fucking allowed to ask. And if they do, the people in NA aren't even allowed to tell them that I was there or not. Like <laughs> So they can't even check on me if they wanted to, you know, right. it's it's a whole conflict of interest there. Just gave a lot of people some ideas. <laughs> yeah. So you can just fill out your own court slips. I mean, fuck it. If that's what you want to do, steal a stamper at the next meeting you go to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I would just, you know, Simon. So, but anyway, um, I remember there was this meeting on Wednesday night. And it was that was a, all that happened happened stance on a Tuesday. And I went to that next day, woke up. Decided I wasn't going to get high anymore. Well, that night, I smoked all my weed and got totally fucked up. Smoked all the weed that I had. All of it. Just kept rolling joints and smoked all of it. Wow. And the next day, woke up and went to a meeting and found my way into NA. And then uh, oh, that starts a whole other recovery journey. Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually uh, what I was thinking about as, you know, the time went up here towards the end of the episode. I was like, this is great. Not only... Does this become a two-part thing where you get to tell your <laughs> recovery version in another portion of this? But that also extends the portion before I have to tell my story. <laughs> I have to do yours. Um, so many similar things. I mean, just to, to point out a couple that struck me that, you know, that feeling of wanting to fit in with the, the cool kids that necessarily weren't doing the best actions, um, you know, being locked up. When I turned 21, those kind of things, going to rehab for the first time at 17, like definitely compared in myself to a lot of that and 
just it, some of it tragic, man. The ways we feel at the end, that really hit me pretty hard. Yeah. The, the hopelessness of that and the feeling of like, I'll never be any better. And, and really from a compassionate place of where I'm at now, like it was never about us being good or bad. Well, and now in, in retrospect, like I look at so many things, like I had so many opportunities or breaks you know, that a lot of people don't get that I'm now completely grateful for. Like I had a family that loved me and at almost any time in my life, if I went to my parents and said, I need help, I need to go to treatment, they would have sent me to treat, you know, they would have paid for it. They would have done whatever. And they would, were always there to support me. And growing up, like I felt some sense of entitlement to that stuff Mm -hmm. and not realizing like, Hey, like a lot of people don't even grow up with both parents, let alone two parents that love them and would do anything for them. And these times I wanted to go to college, I'd go to my parents. Hey, I think I want to go to college. Will you pay for me? Yep, we'll pay for you. You know, so they were always there, like encouraging me and trying to motivate me. I mean, they had their flaws as parents and some of that's contributed to my using. It's not like there's not something going on there, but I had a lot of things that took me a long time to be grateful for and to really I'd be like, fuck, I'm so lucky. Mm. (laughs) Well, and and I think that's uh, been the shift as therapy goes on, right? It's not really blaming the parents. It's not that the parents were terrible or or wanted bad things for the kids, right? It's really has nothing to do with their level of love whatsoever. It's just what did the parents get in their lifetime and, and know how to provide and what stress level were they under, which, you know, we could get into a whole discussion about why having payments to parents on a monthly basis just because they have children is totally helping their stress level, if nothing else, in the financial aspect yeah, and, right. you know, providing a way for them to be better parents. But um, maybe that is something we address one day. But, yeah, man, it's uh, it was good to hear your story. Yeah, so thanks for being willing to share all that and we will have to have a part two about <laughs> where it goes once you find those rooms of narcotics anonymous yeah, that uh, part's easy <laughs> <laughs> you say so but there's a lot in there too uh so uh thanks for listening that is a little bit about yeah. billy and we will continue to explore that and i guess we will see you next week yeah did you like this episode Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>